Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Amy Rojek, Director of BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down with Pam Margulies to discuss the areas of focus that boards and management teams should be considering in advance of the 2023 proxy shareholder season. So as a partner at Freshfields, Brookhouse, and Derringer, Pam focuses on capital market transactions and corporate governance matters. She has deep experience providing issuers and underwriters with advice on a full range of debt and equity offerings, including IPOs, direct listings, and SPAC transactions, along with shelf registrations and takedowns, convertible offerings, block trades, private placements, stock repurchase programs, exchange offers, MTN programs, derivatives, tender offers, open market purchases, consent solicitations, as well as liability management matters. She regularly advises boards of directors and management on a variety of corporate governance topics, which include crisis preparedness, mitigation and response, succession planning, dual class and multi-class share transactions and structures, board composition, refreshment, succession and director independence, stakeholder governance, and public benefit corporation matters. Fiduciary duties and conflicts, along with stakeholder engagement and activism defense, shareholder proposals and proxy season trends, ESG issues, and cybersecurity matters. In addition to her practice, she regularly lectures and writes on corporate governance, cybersecurity, and blockchain topics. Excuse me, blockchain topics. Her clients include private and public companies of all sizes spanning a range of industries. And Pam and I met most recently giving a, a, on a governance panel for a board, and I was really pleased to, to make her acquaintance, and I'm very excited to hear what she has to say today. So Pam, welcome to BDO in the boardroom. Thanks, Amy, for having me. It's good to be here. All right. Well, we're going to jump right in. And like I said, you and I recently had the opportunity to participate together on a similar topical panel at the Corporate Board Member Annual Summit uh, in September. So some of the key areas that we spoke about there included a gradual weakening of support for directors, particularly within the Russell 3000. We talked about, say, on pay proposals, integrating ESG metrics into executive compensation, and a host of other topics that included, say, on performance, universal proxy rules, proxy advisors, as well as shareholder activism being alive and well. So how about working backwards a bit, and we'll share some of the trends that arose during the 2022 proxy season that we could perhaps expect to continue into 2023. Yeah, it's a really good question, Amy. I think that the last several proxy seasons, and in particular, the 2022 proxy season was a very busy one. Um, Part of that was as a result of a fairly significant increase in shareholder proposals that made their way onto corporate ballots. Uh, One of the reasons for that is because the SEC changed its approach to how it would either allow or not permit companies to um, omit certain shareholder proposals from the the proxy statement um, by essentially 
um, making it more difficult for companies to not include shareholder proposals on the proxy statement, which led to an increase in the number of proposals. That always leads to more work, regardless of the outcome, the voting outcome of the proposals. Um, what we saw, unsurprisingly, as a result of that increase in the number of proposals is there was also, in all likelihood, an increase in the number of less good quality proposals. And so when you look at the proposals overall, there was a decrease in the support for them. But the really important proposals, the ones on the topics that are critical to companies and that um, shareholders viewed as really serious in going to a company's overall strategy, those nonetheless continue to garner a decent amount of support, many of them having passed. And so, for example, one of the proposals in that category was the racial equity audit proposals, which had been, um, which started in the prior proxy season. There had been, I believe, six proposals at that time. They had largely been submitted to financial institutions and not one of them had, had passed. In the 22 season, that story was completely different. There was an uptick in the number of those proposals, and many of them actually passed. And I think part of that really does exemplify the point, which is many companies, as a result of the pandemic, as opposed to some of the social unrest that we saw during the time of the pandemic, um, really made commitments to diversity and inclusion and all sorts of related topics. And so um, those companies really put themselves out there and highlighted how important these issues were to them. And so companies, shareholders now in reviewing companies and taking a look at what matters to them really said, well, you know, you told us these issues were important to you. And so now when this proposal is on the ballot, we will vote in favor of it because we all know how important it is to you. So I think ESG was alive and well, will continue to be alive and well. Um, the E aspect of, of ESG, we, we all know, has been very prevalent, especially for the companies sort of most in the crosshairs of that. We will see what happens to the SEC's climate rule, of course. Um, the SEC has announced a delay in finalizing those rules, so we will see what happens to that. Um, S will continue to be important. Um, as I mentioned, diversity, inclusion, all of those kinds of topics continue, but also I think just more broadly from a social perspective, I think that there is a whole host of proposals that will find their way onto the ballot that just reflect what is going on in, in society at large. And so I think companies can ex expect a number of those this season. And then governance has always maybe has fallen from the limelight, but continues to, to be very present. Um, so we'll continue to see those proposals on the governance front as well. I think um, another trend that companies can expect in the coming proxy season is um, sort of what happens to individual directors. What we have started to see, and for a whole variety of reasons, is individual directors being held accountable for a variety of things, which has nothing to do really with their performance or how good they are as a director, but really having to do with shareholders wanting to make a point for one reason or another and um, making that point through withholding uh, votes from a director's re-election. So some of the reasons there, um, is that ISS and Glass-Lewis have guidelines that say, you know, if you don't have a certain diversity or if you don't make enough disclosures on environmental issues or whatever it may be, we will recommend a vote against the, you know, one or more directors on the board. And so uh, you, you may start seeing directors' re-election rates go down. Another reason is obviously overboarding. Um, the number of, of seats that directors you know, that, that many constituencies, whether it's ISS or Glass-Lewis or individual investors themselves, think it appropriately keeps going down. And so if directors are on 
too many seats, according to these constituencies, they might find votes against. And then there's also, um, as a result of all of the IPOs that have occurred over the last several years, many companies go public with um, certain provisions that are protective of newly public companies, but that ISS and Glass-Lewis don't exactly think are shareholder friendly. And so directors may find themselves with recommendations of votes against them. And for those investors who vote in line with ISS or Glass-Lewis recommendations, that will also impact the director's re-election. So I think there is definitely a lot that is going to be going on in the upcoming proxy season. Um, and I guess my advice to companies is it's never too early to start preparing. Although I think the good news is that companies have been doing a lot of work over the last several years. So I, I think that they are um, very familiar with any issues that may be going on at their companies and are are having the appropriate conversations at the management level and um, bringing in the board um, and the board's uh, input on these issues as appropriate. So Pam, let me let me ask you a quick question on that because I know from your background, you you do work with SPAC companies. You, you're very familiar with IPO transactions and what happens there. What are, what are those companies? I guess, what is your best advice for those companies in terms of preparation? Because a lot of them have been kind of thrown into this public company arena and may or may not be aware of all of this, you know, structure and rigor that, that goes around the shareholder meeting season. For some of them, this may be the very first season they're kind of engaging. Um, and I know that between regulatory scrutiny, shareholder scrutiny, every scrutiny, <laughs> what would be your kind of thoughts around what should they specifically be doing to prepare? Yeah, there's definitely a lot to take in. And um, I guess, I think when we advise companies these days, at least as part of the IPO process, a lot of these issues already come up so that companies and um, you know, management teams and directors are not caught off guard. Um, and so we will flag, for example, the ISS and the Glass-Lewis policies on some of these anti-takeover provisions that I was mentioning. We do talk about the landscape on ESG and what, what is important to investors. So we try to do a lot of that preparation in advance so that it doesn't all come flooding in. But um, it's absolutely the case that when you're newly public, there is a lot of this that inevitably will be new. I guess what I would say is... Um, just because you're newly public and just because there may not be any issues yet because of how newly public you are, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't think carefully about shareholder engagement. I think that you should put together an appropriate shareholder engagement plan for obviously the stage of the company and the profile that the company has and start reaching out to those investors because doing that on a clear day will obviously make it much easier to engage with them if ever there were to be an issue later. But also, it can be just an advanced warning um, system. So uh, I would recommend that when companies reach out, they, they reach out with the idea of wanting to take in as much information as they can from their investors to see where there may or may not be some potential issues down the line. And that at least gives the company a whole host of information that it can then take back uh, and work on and figure out what, if anything, the company should do. And it doesn't mean that you always need to do something. Sometimes it could just be a tweak to disclosure. Sometimes it does require something more, but being aware of whatever issue may be going on out there is never going to be a bad thing for the company. Oh, fair enough. Thank you. So we talked about a lot in, in the event that you and I did on kind of the shareholder activism side. So maybe you can address some of the newer developments that may favor you know, active or activist shareholders. So, you know, whether that's economic uncertainty, new universal proxy rules that have gone into effect, et cetera. 
Yeah, so economic uncertainty always is a fertile ground for activism whenever stock prices struggle for you know, a variety of reasons. Activists often find that a good time to, to swoop in. Um, and, and so, unfortunately, we are seeing a lot of that these days. Um, we are seeing a decent amount of activism going on out there. And so the activists are definitely paying attention and doing exactly what we, frankly, would have expected them to be doing. Um, so that's that's just sort of the macro environment in which we find ourselves. I think the university universal proxy rules, it's still TBD what exactly the impact of those will be. I mean, the larger um, activists really were always so well-funded that it didn't really matter Um and so I don't think this will have that much of an impact on on what they do. The margins, this could be a little bit more helpful for some of the smaller activists. Um, so we'll we'll see what what happens with that. This will be the first proxy season in which it would apply. Um, and then I guess ESG activism, you know, that issue continues to be present. Um, uh, ESG, just because of how prevalent it is. Will, will continue to really be a topic that activists really seek to leverage, just like a variety of other things. I mean, we've seen a number of campaigns over the years where, you know, diversity issues have has been one of the talking points for activists making claims, rightly or wrongly, but it almost doesn't matter once the claim has been made that, you know, a certain lack of diversity at some level in the company is what leads to, is what is contributing to, you know, performance that may not be, what the activist thinks it should be. And so those kinds of claims, though, do resonate with some of the other investors in the company shareholder base and can help curry favor with those investors and garner support for the activist thesis. And so all of these things fit together. And so it's very important to understand what are the issues that matter to the various constituencies in a company shareholder base to understand exactly what kinds of claims will resonate and with whom and what that may lead in terms of support for an activist agenda. So the issue, the issues become just so much more complex because the number of things in an activist arsenal these days has gotten much, much broader and goes well beyond, you know, we think you should declare a special dividend or we think you should engage in some kind of MA. No, fair enough. Fair enough. So I guess in thinking about the 2023 proxy season, you know, how might that really flush out or highlight director qualifications as determinants of being fit for purpose and what impact this may have on their annual re-election results? As we've kind of, you know, touched on that a little bit with, you know, some of the aspects that, you know, you, you indicated earlier that, you know, it may not be a matter of their performance. It may surely be an avenue for an activist to make a point or or a proxy advisor to make a point about, you know, how companies may or may not be adhering to policies. So maybe you can give us some thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's very good question. So there are, there is, there, companies have really been making an increased push to add more information about the composition of the board as a whole. So a number of companies have skills matrices that they include. NASDAQ requires its own um, sort of matrix of director qualifications and shareholders just generally are asking about it. And it's tied into refreshment and director tenure too. Um, you know, and as the world changes, the kinds of things, uh, the kinds of skills that people think should be represented on the board also changes. And so periodically you, you will have questions about, you know, do I need cyber expertise on the board? Do I need climate competence on the board? And what do those things mean in any event? And so I think that there has been 
companies have really been thinking very holistically about board composition. And as they do that, also the tie in with diversity, because oftentimes some of these other skill sets may not be found in the traditional profiles of directors that um, companies used to look to in the past. And so what I would say is um, thinking about director about board composition, tying it into director refreshment when appropriately, thinking about how to conduct a robust evaluation process to make sure that the board is really functioning at the best level that it can be functioning at, I think will be really important because shareholders are really asking about it. Um, and also it's important to be able to, if there are any issues, to be able to identify them and be able to describe why or why not um, that they might, why or they might or might not be, you know, real issues that investors need to be worried about because we have started seeing an increasing number of questions from shareholders on, on these issues and an increasing amount of disclosure and proxy statements about, about board refreshment and board composition. And I think what you just said about the why or why not is is important to highlight because some of these rules are really, you know, comply or explain like the NASDAQ requirements currently. Um, it'll remain to be seen what the SEC decides with respect to cybersecurity disclosures, as well as the climate change disclosures with respect to board experience um, and how that is manifested within the board itself. So just maybe, do you have any thoughts on that in terms of what people should be thinking about in that regard? Yeah, so that's why I think it's important to do the exercise of the board evaluation and really get a holistic perspective on what is going on. I, I think that there isn't a one-size-fits-all uh, answer here, and that's actually a really good thing. But what makes it challenging, the fact that there's not a one-size-fits-all, is that it then requires each company to be thoughtful about why its current composition makes sense for it. And then once you've concluded why your current composition is the right one for the company, also remembering to actually say it. So many times companies get asked, like, what is going on? And they have a perfectly good answer. But the problem is when you go and look at the public disclosures, it's not actually said, articulated anywhere. And so it sometimes the fix is as easy as just putting the information out there. So uh, it's important to do the work and to identify any issues and then to actually say, tell the market you know, why this current composition makes sense for the company and not to view those kinds of disclosures as you know, an opportunity for boilerplate, but rather an opportunity to really make an important message because I think it is really important and investors are very focused on the board. Yeah, I think that I actually think the approach falling short of requiring that on the board because, you know, suddenly you're going to have a board that's massive. And for smaller companies, it's just not a sustainable proposition when you're talking about a company that may have, you know, four to six board members versus a company that has 15 or more. And, you know, the, the larger company obviously has more of a bandwidth to bring those skill sets in. But when you think about a smaller company, a lot of times they're getting that expertise by relying on subject matter experts that come to advise the board, advisory you know, advisory committees of the board, things like that. And, that, and that's perfectly fine. And companies need to kind of remember that and to your point, explain themselves and, and tell their stories so that, you know, the, the typical investor that may or may not know that can understand truly how they are protecting the company on risk and how they're working that into strategy. So I think that's a really important thing that you just that you just talked about. So maybe let's go a little deeper on the ESG front and, and recognizing that 
ESG has become such a kind of like an uh-oh kind of word. And it's really not. It's it's all the risks that companies have really been dealing with forever, you know, with the exception of some heightened risks that are really emerging. But if you think about it, environmental, social governance, those things have always been around. It's just we're getting more focused on this, and I'll put my audit hat on, from an inclusion in mainstream reporting, if you will, mainstream financial reporting. We're starting to recognize or not starting, but fully recognizing that material risks that these types of items represent to a company's sustainable and financial health. So maybe if you could talk about, you know, how these factors in what they what companies should really be thinking about in terms of ESG factors and their communications and engagements with shareholders and other stakeholders. Yeah. So it's a really good question, Amy. And I would say that one of the most helpful ways that I, I think about it is by looking at the sort of the trajectory over the last, I don't know, call it 10 years on ESG. And 10 years ago, when this started sort of in earnest, I think people were trying to figure out what exactly it meant and trying to put their finger on like what was and was not important, um, both from a shareholder perspective and a company perspective. If you fast forward now 10 years, a lot of companies, a lot of investors, frankly, have done a lot of work here and I think they've gotten a lot more sophisticated. And so m- many, many companies and many investors have been able to focus in a lot more on what matters. There are still people out there who have their pet issues of things that matter to them because that is what they care about, but it is less, a lot less critical to companies. But the point I think is, is because so many people have done the work, companies are now in a position to be able to articulate what is actually material to them, what actually matters and impacts strategy and the bottom line and where the significant issues are. And so if you're able to articulate that clearly, and I think we're starting to see a theme here and some of the things we're talking about is that you have to also be able to articulate it in disclosure and in your engagement um, exercises. But if you're articulating what matters to you, it is also a lot easier to say why issue X or Y is not actually important to the company and why it doesn't matter so much and be able to reframe the discussion in terms of what matters to the company. So what we are really advising is for companies to be proactive in the messaging as opposed to reactive. And the benefit there is that A, you get to control the messaging, but B, you get to also narrow the scope of the things that the company focuses on so that the company doesn't feel like it's constantly chasing down new issues. I think the other thing that we're going to start seeing more and more of, and we started to see a little bit of this past proxy season, and and you've seen even since the the 22 proxy season ended, is the quote-unquote anti-ESG movement. That means a lot of things. It's pretty broad as to what that means, and it's obviously become will continue to become, I think, highly politicized. And there too, I think it really is important for a company to have really good messaging because a lot of the issues that fall under ESG are very social, can be sensitive, can be politicized. And so in order to try and avoid some of that fray and to be able to have a clear messaging that is tied to strategy and why it matters to the company's bottom line, it's important to have a really thoughtful message that stays away from political issues and refocuses on risk and strategy and all the kinds of things that you highlighted, which are the kinds of things that, you know, companies and boards of directors are really good at focusing on. No, good good advice there. And yeah, I've heard a lot of the kind of the ESG fatigue and and things like that. And one of the interesting conversations I had recently on the heels of another governance event that I attended, I had the opportunity to um, to share a car at one point during the the week with with a gentleman who was talking about 
basically engagement with the shareholder groups that he's involved in and and you know early and constant engagement was his strongest advice and just really understanding who your key shareholders are who who really care who have the long 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 game in mind um was really important to him in his leadership role with his organization so i thought it was really really telling that you know that is happening this wasn't a particularly large company but you know you're very forward thinking and one of the aspects that we talked about was where there's a real need for continuing education around strategy. So you just mentioned kind of being able to really articulate, you know, ESG factors and how they relate to your strategy, your bottom line, your risk. Can you focus on strategy for a minute? Maybe that'll take us into kind of our, our next question in terms of, you know, what's seemingly the most sought after advice your clients are seeking. So maybe kind of we'll we'll pair those together, if you will. Yeah. So just on strategy, that that is one of the core functions of the board is to really help management with strategy and oversee the strategic direction of the company. And so there are things that really are important to companies and really critical to their success. And then there are things that are just, you know, possibly nice to have, but are a lot less kind of critical. And, you know, it's a very benign example of, for example, recycling the paper. It's a nice to have, but, you know, if a company doesn't recycle paper, I don't think it necessarily impacts its bottom line. So you can see that there are issues that will fall on, on either side. And these are very industry specific. Not all of the issues will be the same for all companies and will also depend on size um, and other specific considerations of, of the company. Not all companies will be impacted in the same way, obviously. And so I think that one of the exercises that I think boards are engaging in a lot with a lot more regularity is a really thoughtful deep dive into the company's principal risks. Um, we get questions all the time about ERM programs. And so I think if it's not happening at the company, the company should make sure that you know, management together with the board reviews the critical risks. And there is a real kicking of the tires there and a real stepping back and making sure that like, have we actually picked up all of them? Um, have there been any that have changed? Uh, especially as a result of COVID, has scrambled a lot about the way companies operate, where their workforce is located. Um, and so I think a good review of that is important. To your specific question of like what kinds of issues, like for example, one of the ones that comes up so much these days because it's on everyone's mind is what is going on with the workforce. Um, three years ago, everybody used to work in the office. Now it's not everybody anymore and every company has a different mix. Um, and so how is that impacting retention, how is that impacting recruiting? Um, for many companies, maybe most companies these days, the employees are the most strategically important asset. And so understanding sort of what is going on with the workforce and are you really getting and retaining the best talent is, I would say, one of those critical risks. And that may be a newer risk or the, the level of that risk may have changed as a result of COVID and the way, you know, um, companies' practices with respect to employees has changed. And so, um, and on the environmental side, there's the same, there's the same kind of spectrum. There are some for whom climate change um, is a real issue, and there are some for whom climate change is a lot less impactful, but figuring out the points where it matters. Um, like for instance, if you're a property insurer and you're insuring a bunch of properties on the coastline, then there are bigger floods or bigger storms um, that obviously does impact you very differently than, you know, if you maybe are engaged in some other widget making activities that are less impacted by weather. So 
but boards have been doing that for a very long time. So they are good at figuring out and, and um, helping companies manage through those risks. And so I think that would be my number one piece of advice is to look critically at the risks for each company. Um, and that's how you help figure out which ones of the ESG issues really are important to, to strategy. Now that that makes a lot of sense, and I think just even stepping back further, and you know, in starting with the risks, we've talked about risks. The flip side of that are opportunities, and I and I never want to lose sight of that because I think for many people, like I started my my thought process earlier, was that you know ESG has become this uh oh moniker for a lot of folks that aren't truly embracing it. But there's also a lot of opportunities, and we've we've seen that with COVID in terms of how p- companies were able to pivot, scale very quickly new revenue streams and opportunities that came out of the crisis. I mean, you know, there's also a lot of companies that couldn't do that and are now, you know, really struggling if if they're even still in existence. So, you know, there's two sides to every coin, but I, I don't want folks to lose sight of that opportunity. And I think it's critically important when you're going into shareholder meeting season, to your point, we've talked a lot about communications and being able to transparently discuss what's happening within the company that gives confidence to the shareholder base. And a lot of that is how you frame the opportunities that all of these things present. And I, th- I think that's an important aspect that I don't wanna lose sight of in this conversation, but I'm gonna give you the last word here and you know anything that's kind of percolating on your mind that you think would be critical to our listeners. Yeah, so I, I think that what you just said probably is the single most important piece of advice that we just repeat is to like do the work to figure out you know what your company story is and then remember to actually articulate it in your disclosures and then refer back to it as part of your engagement with shareholders. But the other piece of that story is that um, your shareholders are an important constituency, but you also have many others, including your employees and your customers. And now many of these issues are absolutely critical to those constituencies as well. And so having this coherent messaging that like applies across the board and thinks about sort of the impact on those other constituencies is going to be very important. Um, there's a number of town halls that we've seen, the number of you know, employee issues that have percolated over the last several years, the number of social media campaigns by consumers who are displeased about one thing or another with respect to the companies from which they buy goods or services, like all of that is tied in together. Um, and so doing the work and having a good a good messaging framework that um, takes into account all those different perspectives, I think will help companies um, weather some interesting times ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pam, I would love to have you back, particularly as we await some of the major um, decisions being made by the SEC and others that could, could significantly impact how we're looking at a lot of these things. Um, but in the meantime, I want to thank you for being with me today and thank you for all of our folks tuning in to BDO in the boardroom and look forward to our, our next episode. Pam, pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Amy. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash BDO Governance.